To say that 2020 has been a wild year would be a massive understatement. If it's caused you to take additional interest, though, in the economy and your own financial situation, then learning about that stuff is exactly why we're here. So let's get into it. We need to challenge ourselves. We need to force ourselves to ask questions. Questions about the past, about the present. We need to push ourselves to understand the world. Welcome, everyone, to the Economy Ninja Podcast. This is your host, Colin Norton. I know what you're thinking. Learning these lessons about the economy is great and all. But Colin, when are you going to tell me about what's going on in the markets? Don't worry. We'll get there. But first, we got to put in the work. we got to put in the effort, and then we get to good stuff later. So today, we are going to talk about deflation. This is an important concept because of how significantly it can contribute to a stock market crash and is a threat to high asset prices. Also, I'm not a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. So first, the basics. What is deflation? Deflation is the general lowering of price or prices of goods and services over time. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. And you're right. Not all deflation is bad. Technology, for example, is very deflationary, and it makes things in society more efficient. Uh, so as a result, productivity can go up or costs can come down. Great examples are how flat screen TVs and computers get better and cheaper uh, as time goes on. Or food production has advanced to keep up with population increases. So what would make deflation a threat to the economy? Well, one aspect is that we have a consumer-driven economy. When you look at the United States Gross Domestic Product, or GDP, which is the gross income of all economic activity in the U.S., you can see that 70% of GDP comes from personal consumption of goods and services. The remainder of GDP is from business investment and from government spending. But this is a result of many years in a developed economy like the U.S. where consumer demand has driven the changes to include a wide assortment of choices. This is great in a market economy, but it also has resulted in a smaller and smaller uh, portion of GDP being from the sale and consumption of essential goods and services. This means that it is now a choice to pay for a lot of the goods and services out there. Here's an example. Let's say you're thinking about buying a bike. You don't need the bike. You just want the bike. You know, you're, you like bikes. You're into bikes. It's not an essential good. All right. After doing some comparisons, like the good consumer you are, you find that the bike that you want, uh, let's say it's $300 today. If you knew that bike was going to be more expensive, say 
$600 next month, then that might incentivize you or create a sense of urgency for you to want to go and buy that bike right now. That's an example of inflation. It motivates you into action. Now, let's take a look at the deflation scenario. If the bike is $300 today, but you know it's going to be $200 next month, you'll probably wait. And then when next month arrives, but you find out it'll be $100 if you wait another month, well, you, you can see what happens. You become incentivized to wait as it becomes a better deal. This is an example of having certainty at future prices, but the same is true if a consumer just believes that prices are going to be lower in the future. This is known as the saver's paradox, and it's a major con contributor to a continuous deflationary environment. Now I'll expand on that simple case of deflation and apply it to a realistic scenario using the current state of the economy. Now to be clear, there's no certainty of this scenario occurring, but it's important to consider as a thought experiment. One sure way to have deflation is if the total money supply in the economy is shrinking. If you recall in this very important lesson from episode two, Modern Money, the money supply is mostly changed when banks lend money. The Federal Reserve doesn't just type money into existence and then hand it out like candies. The Fed buys debt that is owned by commercial banks. That debt is backed in some way by the federal government, like treasury bonds, which are themselves units of government debt. And we also said that those commercial banks that receive money from the Fed uh, have it placed in a reserve account that's located at the Fed, and they're allowed to lend against it. The big kicker of all of this is those banks don't have to lend money if they don't want to. <laughs> so you might think, why wouldn't banks want to lend money? Isn't that how they make money? Isn't that their whole business model? Well, yes, but let's take a closer look. The commercial banks are willing to lend money when they think the borrower is going to pay them back so they can realize those profits. But in the current economic environment, banks are anticipating less consumption in general. Therefore, less revenues for businesses and more layoffs as a result. That means less income for businesses and individuals alike. Now, since the pain in the economy is so broad, the banks don't know exactly who will be affected, so they instead are just indiscriminately tightening their lending to everyone. The banks are so afraid of the economy that they assume everyone is higher risk. And that's because the simple fact that if the borrower can't pay, then the banks lose money. And they don't want that. Banks like money. In fact, the banks have been socking away large amounts of money for the impending defaults on debts of all types. And from all of the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing, the banks have way more cash reserves at the Fed than they're required to have. All of this money is sitting there, all the while the Fed is desperately trying to encourage the banks to lend money out. 
And that's because the Fed wants businesses and individuals to have access to money because that's going to grow the economy. So what happens to all of that money sitting at the Fed? Well, the Fed pays interest on it to the banks. The banks receive what's called interest on excess reserves uh, at a rate of 0.1% today. Well, you might be thinking, that's not much. In fact, that's kind of crap. You know, my ally account makes more than that. And for you and I, 0.1% is rough. It's kind of small. But that's because we're worried about inflation and the loss of our purchasing power. But we're not talking about the inflation scenario. And when we think of the banks, banks control the amount of lending in the economy. The amount of lending in the economy controls the amount of money supply in the economy, which controls inflation. So banks, to a large extent, control inflation. And right now, they're not making any inflation. So what does this mean? Well, that brings us to the potential scenario of the dreaded deflationary spiral. This becomes its own vicious cycle. So the banks are afraid to lend because the economy sucks and they don't want to lose money. They are so certain that they're happy with earning their 0.1% interest instead of making more money by lending it to businesses and individuals. When they don't lend money, the money supply constricts, which is deflationary. Less money in circulation, less money available, prices for things come down. What things have the highest prices right now? A lot of assets, you know, stocks, houses, businesses, things that people work their entire life to build. Those are some things that can have a significant price correction in this scenario where money becomes less accessible. Then the wealth effect shows up or the psychological impact that asset values have on a person's behavior in the economy. That wealth effect can start to have a negative impact. My house is worth less. My 401k is plummeting. I'm going to have to work until I'm dead or I'll spend less money. And this reinforces the cycle. Less spending, and since one person's spending is another person's income, their incomes go down. Then there's less spending. Less spending, less revenues for other businesses, less jobs, less income, less spending. And it goes on and on. Now, this is a scenario that is absent of government intervention such as stimulus measures or changes in laws or regulations that can influence the way that banks lend money or how the Federal Reserve performs its open market operations like quantitative easing. But this is a scenario that is scarily close to the environment that we are seeing right now as we sit in limbo leading up to the U.S. election. Banks have tightened lending considerably. Asset prices are very elevated, and personal incomes and business revenues are declining as relief programs that stimulated the economy over the summer begin to wear off. And now, many people are standing on a financial cliff overlooking a financial abyss. All the while, 
it appears that there's no additional help coming in the form of, the, of relief from the federal government until after the U.S. elections in November. And these are great topics that I would like to expand on in the next episode. You wanted more? You're getting more. But now, I need you to like this podcast and subscribe to the channel. Also, if you want to further show your support, you can check out some of the links that I'll put in the description below. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening, and you have a nice day.